The date was October 22nd, 1844. The enthusiasm had been building for several months. There was a preacher in the Millerite movement, which was a uh, movement in uh, that time, which was uh, gaining tremendous steam, tremendous momentum, lots of excitement, as it was focusing on Jesus' second coming. And there was a preacher in the Millerite movement who predicted that on this precise date, October 22nd, 1844, Jesus Christ would return, that it would be on that date based on biblical prophecy. He had calculated it, and everyone was getting ready. People were selling all their possessions, and on that particular date, people were found with great joy, great expectancy on mountaintops and in churches looking for Jesus to return. But by the end of the day, it had turned out to be a day much like any other day, and Jesus did not return. And the people looked around and they said, what happened? We had gone through such careful calculations. Why is it that Jesus didn't return? What went wrong? And then with things like this, it can fuel, fuel the scoffers, as Peter talks about in 2 Peter chapter 3, where it says this, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. People are fascinated by time. You know, people want to know what's going to happen. They they want to know what the future will bring. And oftentimes when people look at the second coming, it becomes this fascination about when Jesus will return. And yes, it would be exciting, wonderful. I mean, imagine that. If Jesus were to come back today, I mean, that would be tremendous. But Jesus himself said these words, no one knows the day nor the hour, which means he's trying to steer us away from the idea of predicting the exact time of his return, like the Millerites did back in 1844, and instead onto another subject. Because with his teaching on his second coming, he keeps saying these same words over and over again. Therefore, keep watch. Therefore, be prepared. The question is, how do we do that? Now, for some, maybe keeping watch might, might entail uh, trying to calculate the exact date and hour and time of his return. But in reality, there's something more to it than that. Something that we can find... Uh, uh, in Jesus' parables about His second coming. And he, and he teaches about His second coming oftentimes with parables. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at one of those particular parables and see what Jesus has to say about this. What does it mean to keep watch? You know, with this series that we have been in here in the month of December, in this season of Advent, what we've been talking about is this, uh, or I've called it, is the world clock. Because at some point in time, the world clock, that, that time that is this, this world time that we set our watches to, our cell phones to, all these kinds of devices to, will come to an end. We know this. And therefore, keep watch. It says this in Matthew 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. 
Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The difference between the five who were foolish and the five who were wise is the difference between being prepared and not being prepared for Jesus' coming. The difference between uh, keeping watch and not keeping watch for Jesus' coming. And Jesus uh, commanded us to keep watch, therefore this one is awfully important. To get at it, we uh, see that Jesus is using the commonly known, during that time anyway, commonly known uh, customs of a first century wedding. And with the first century wedding, it's a little bit different than the way that we practice uh, wedding rituals these days. What would happen is that the bridegroom would come to the bride's home where gifts would be exchanged. There would be the dowry and there'd be the bride price, you know, things like that. And, uh, and uh, the father of the bride would provide a gift to try to set up the new family. Uh, you know, and then after that, after the bridegroom came to the bride's home, um, the bridegroom would lead a procession back to his own home where the bride and her entourage, her attendants, in this case it's referring to them as virgins, what that means is that they are unmarried, they are uh, the bridesmaids, in other words, uh, go in this procession with the bridegroom back to his home where they have the wedding feast. And the wedding feast is uh, something that you, you can only get in if you know the bridegroom. Um, you, you go in the procession uh, knowing the bridegroom, things like that. And the hour of the bridegroom's arrival at the bride's home was unannounced. Therefore, this excitement could build. You know, it could be at this hour, it could be at that hour. We just don't know, you know, when the bridegroom is going to arrive for the bride. And therefore, the thing to do is to watch for the bridegroom. Now, in Jesus' parables, what we can see is that whatever the parable is, that the, the characters in the story stand for something else or for someone else. So oftentimes we can see a character, and you kind of do this intuitively, I think. Think, okay, that one stands for God, that one stands for me, and, you know, whatever that might be. So we look at this story. And see, who are these characters standing for? Of course, the, the bridegroom is Jesus coming back. And the, and, the, uh, and the bride, we can see elsewhere in Scripture, refers to the church. Now, for you and me, what, what we are invited to do here is determine, are we among the five who are wise or the five who are foolish? And then there's other things in there as, as well. There's, there's the oil, there's, there's the flame, things like that. And the feast, the feast, well, that's the wedding feast is, is that, that paradise, that heaven that awaits His church. And, and last week we talked about how you know, Jesus was saying that He goes to prepare a place for us. Well, that's at His home. So, you know, all of this is symbolic of what's going to happen when Jesus returns. And we don't know the day nor the hour. We don't know the time. Therefore, he says, keep watch. Keep watch for the bridegroom. The question is, if we're to be either the, among the five who were foolish or the five who were wise, what is the difference between the two? And the difference is that some were prepared and some were not. So why is it, what, what makes those prepared and those who are not. Well, those who are prepared for the bridegroom to return in a first wedding, first century wedding, are those who would be watching for the bridegroom. Their focus is on the bridegroom, not on themselves. 
And those who are foolish then would be the opposite of that. They would be people who, are, who don't have their focus on the bridegroom, have their focus on themselves instead. So in this case, it means that the five who are wise are those who have their focus on Jesus and not on themselves. And the five who are foolish are the ones who have the focus on themselves instead of on Jesus, which means this, that if we're going to be keeping watch, if we are going to be prepared for His second coming, we need to get over ourselves. That's key. The, uh, one, of the, one of the writers for the uh, TV uh, show, The Simpsons, wrote a little piece here on self-centeredness. And I'm not a real fan of The Simpsons, okay, but I've got to acknowledge that if there is anyone who could be considered to be an expert on self-centeredness, it would be Bart Simpson, Right? So we go to this quote from a writer for The Simpsons about it. He says this, Take this simple test. After your next long conversation with someone, estimate what percentage of it you spent talking. Be honest. No, you're already underestimating. How do I know? Because it's more fun to talk than to listen. Talking is like drinking a great Cabernet. Listening is like doing squats. Listening is like reading a corporate report. Talking is like eating a cinnamon bun. Now, people love to be the center of their own universe. You know, you just need to look at at social media to see this, that they love to be the center of their own universe. You look at Facebook or Twitter or things like that, and it's all about me, really. It's tough to be listening and watching while at the same time you're focused on yourself. It's tough to do that. So what were the five who were foolish doing? They were doing what a lot of us are doing. They were focused on themselves instead of on the bridegroom. But when Jesus returns, and for us to be ready for that day, you and I need to be found focused on Him instead of on ourselves. We need to get over ourselves. Matthew 25, verse 6. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. Now, when I read this, you know, the problem I've got at this point in time is that it sounds like the five who are wise are the ones who are selfish, right? They won't share their oil. But what's key here is, and we haven't talked about this yet, but what does the oil stand for? What does the flame of those lamps stand for? Well, if we look in Scripture, what we can see is that fire oftentimes stands for the presence of God. So we see, for example, in the burning bush, we see that as the presence of God. We see the tongues of fire that come at Pentecost as representing the presence of God. So here we can say that the flame represents the presence of God. And flame burns on you know, some kind of fuel, in this case oil. Therefore, what is it that fuels or on what does the presence of God, what, what is that fueled by in a person's life? What do you think? What, what fuels the presence of God in your life? Faith. Right? Faith. Therefore, the oil really stands for faith. 
And here's the thing is that while, you know, so many of us may have people in our lives that we care about, we love, you know, that, that don't know the Lord, that really don't believe, that don't trust Him. And we, we may want to believe for them. Here, here's the way that it really is, is that a person cannot believe for another person. You cannot have faith on behalf of someone else. A person must have faith themselves in whatever that is. You know, you cannot be a human being without faith. We have faith in all kinds of different things. If you have faith in, in the elevator, you're going to step in the elevator. You cannot have faith for another person. I mean, you know, it, it would be impossible. And therefore, likewise here, you cannot have faith for another person. Therefore, these five who are wise cannot possibly give their oil away. Now, they can talk about their oil. They can encourage them to go get oil, which is exactly what they do. They say, go get yourself some oil. Oil is good. You know, go get some faith. So they head off to get it. But up until then, they had not tended to this. And therefore, they were found wanting. They were found short. Now, if you want the flame of Christ burning in your life, that takes faith. Faith in God. And faith costs something. It costs the Son of God everything to give you faith. He died to give you faith. He died to give everyone faith. And yet, not everyone believes, do they? Why is it that some believe and some don't believe? There could be all kinds of reasons we could come up with for this, but in this particular case, what we can see is this, that for some, the cost of having that faith is too great. Jesus said this in Matthew 16, verse 25, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. People have no faith because they sense that the cost is going to be too great to have it. There's all kinds of people I've spoken with who will tell me, you know, you know man, I, I don't want to believe because, you know, I like the way I am. I don't want to change. You know, maybe things aren't working out so hot, but hey, it's all I know. You know, and, and this, if I was to believe in Jesus, that means everything is going to change. I mean, they know this. And yet people hang on to the self-focused instead of the Christ-centeredness. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever gives up his life will find it. The five who were foolish thought that they could be, be able to get by just with a little bit of oil because we can see here that these are not faithless people. They have some oil. And Jesus elsewhere had said, you know, even a little bit of faith can move mountains. So it's not about the amount, but rather the endurance and the emphasis here, because their, their idea is I'm going to have a foot in both worlds, one foot that's about the bridegroom, but another foot that's about me, about self-centeredness. And it doesn't work that way. In the middle of the night, the cry rang out. You see, the reality is this, is that faith involves risk. That's the way that it is. That's what we talk about when we take, just talk about taking a step of faith. It involves risk. It, there's risk that the bridegroom is actually coming back. There's risk that God is real. There's risk that God actually loves me. There's risk that God actually will never leave me nor forsake me. And all of that involves faith. But if you have just a little taste of the presence of God and the joy of God and the peace of God, 
it shows that this life that is self-centered does not compare to the buffet, the feast that he has waiting for us, which is absolutely incredible. Matthew 25. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. And if you are not known by the bridegroom, you're not going to get in because they don't allow wedding crashers at these things. You've got to be known by the bridegroom. Have you ever tried to carry on a conversation with somebody who is totally wrapped up in themselves, who is totally self-centered? I mean, it is incredibly difficult to really, even though they are letting you know everything that they want to let you know about themselves, it's still very difficult to even get to know them because it's such a turnoff. You know, it's easy to tune them out. A, a real conversation that in, involves some give and take, some listening as well as speaking, and some mutual respect is what allows people to get to know one another and allows us to get to know God and Him, us. And at the end of time, what we want to hear is that He knows us. The end of the day, what we want to know is that God knows our name. And He is delighted to do that. He came into this world for that. And the sad thing about this is that at the end of time, these people who had every reason, every right to be in this procession and to be at this wedding did not get to know God. Instead, they hedged their bets. One foot in this world, one foot in the next. One foot about Jesus, one foot about myself. But you know what? Here's, here's, here's the other thing is that is that uh, for Christians, we can find ourselves, even though we, we might know that it needs to be about Jesus, we can find ourselves kind of slipping a little bit at times. I can, you know, where, where the things of this world become so huge and so important and, and, and all that after a while, it, you know, I find that I need to get over myself once again. Even though there have been many times when Jesus has been so important, the center of my life and all of this, that self-centeredness begins to rise up again and, and start to take over. So today, I'm going to invite you to ask yourself some questions. How might you need to restock your oil of faith? How might you need to do that? How can you do that? How might you need to get over yourself and on to Jesus? How might you rediscover your first love. Well, Jesus gave this recipe for this, okay? He said, do this. Matthew 23, verse 11. He said, the greatest among you will be your slave. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, find somebody to serve. Not because they're deserving, not because they can pay you back, not because they're so wonderful and all of this kind of stuff, but because you see them as Jesus sees them, as somebody who is, for whom the blood of Christ was shed. Serve somebody else. And in doing that, in doing that, you'll be getting over yourself and getting on to Jesus because it's time.
It's time. It's time for you and me to get over ourselves and to be about Jesus. Keep watch. Amen.